Have you ever found yourself in a position where you have to go the extra mile to prove you're not racist? You might think, it's not my problem when people of color are offended by things you inadvertently say or do. But that's why this podcast is here, to challenge you to do better. Because when you do better, you know better. Welcome to the Not My Problem podcast. Hey everybody, uh, good afternoon or good morning or good evening. Uh, welcome back uh, to Not My Problem podcast. So today I'm really excited. We have a really, really special guest for you all today. Um, today we will be welcoming Dr. Jamila Holcomb. Um, she is going to give us some valuable information about racial trauma, um, what that looks like, and how it is presenting um, today. Um, Jamila, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and talk with you guys. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. Um, can you just give our listeners just a little bit of information about you, your education? Absolutely. So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I practice here in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm also teaching faculty in the department at Florida State University. Um, so I kind of have a whole bunch of different hats that I wear. But in regards to my training, I did my master's in marriage and family therapy at Northwestern University in, in Evanston, Illinois. And then I came to Tallahassee to do my doctorate in marriage and family therapy at Florida State and just stuck around because I love the program so much. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so can you give us, so just something to keep in mind, a lot of our listeners are not counselors. Okay. Um, I know cause I'm also an LMHC, I'm a licensed counselor. So I know some of the conversation that you and I might have might be a little bit different because, you know, we kind of have an understanding of some of the groundwork of trauma and we kind of have an understanding of, um, some groundwork that most of my listeners do not have. Um, so, um, if I might ask you to, you know maybe explain something a little further if there's something that I think the listeners might not quite uh, know what we're talking about or might need some further explanation. Um, so if you, if you don't mind, can you, can you kind of start off with giving us a, an explanation uh, or a definition of what racial trauma is? Mm -hmm. So racial trauma put simply is the aftermath of experiencing racism or discrimination. So we can think of it as, you know, psychological pain or emotional pain or even physical pain as a result of experiencing racism. So all of the overwhelming feelings, the anxiety, depression, um, uh, numbness, anger, uh, physical, like physiological symptoms as well, all of that, that kind of result from consistently experiencing racism kind of encompasses what's called racial trauma. Okay. And now when we talk, thank you, because I know when we talk about the anger and pain, right? So can you expand a little bit on anger and pain? Because, I, you know, I think sometimes people hear anger and think of something like, oh, hey, that makes me angry. Please don't do that. And, you know, not really understanding the extent of Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, in smaller instances, so, so racial trauma, or like racism, just in general, can be experienced in a variety of different ways. So when we talk about like microaggressions, certainly we might experience like an anger that you're speaking to, like, hey, I don't like you saying that, like, you know, that was please, rude. Yeah. yeah, that was rude. That was racist. That made me uncomfortable, whatever. So we might experience that in the short term. But when we talk about like 
anger as it relates to racial trauma, we're really talking about uh, anger that sits with us for a long time and that really has an impact on our daily functioning. So it's not just I'm angry in this moment, it's that I'm holding on to anger and that's going to impact how I show up at my job, how I show up within my families, how I think about myself, um, you know, because of continual types of racism experiences. And, and I think too, it's, it's worth mentioning, you know, like talking about like, oh, this is something that I've experienced and I'm angry right now, but also taking into consideration generationally, Absolutely. is there anything you'd like to add about that are Absolutely. Yeah. So certainly we are going to experience racial trauma through our personal experiences, but we also experience it by witnessing others experience racism. We also experience racial trauma through hearing stories about our family members or people who look like us also experiencing racial trauma generationally. So I always talk about like the legacy of slavery and, you know, the conversations that are passed down about slavery and the stories that are passed down through generations. So even though I wasn't alive during that time, I still hold that trauma based on the stories that are passed down to me and hold that anger and frustration and, um, you know, all you of know, the other things related to those stories. And, 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 Last episode, we we had a guest on that was actually talking about slavery, and he and he really did um, did a really I thought a really great job of kind of bringing attention to the fact that slavery really wasn't that long ago. We're, we're not really talking many generations now ago. Um, so you know, in, in some people's families, these were great grandparents. So it's really yeah, not you know, yeah, it's not four hundred. It's it's not. It's not that far. It's not that far removed. And especially when we talk about trauma and how it's, you know, stored within our bodies, time really doesn't matter when we talk about trauma. Um, it, it could be 400 years ago. It could be yesterday. The trauma kind of keeps us stuck in that moment. And so we don't time travel with, with trauma. And so and it can be hard when people look at a timeline and say, well, you weren't born during that time or, um, you know, yeah, this has been a couple hundred years. Uh, but when we talk about trauma, we really need to consider how it keeps us stuck in time and you can't move forward and you're typically kind of stuck in the past as it relates to, um, to like generational trauma. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? A little bit more about how drama keeps you stuck? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, when you encounter something traumatic, you kind of have like two experiences, I guess. One is like the initial experience of the trauma. Um, so when you're being traumatized by something, you're kind of in an arousal phase. Your like nervous system is going haywire, um, trying to help you prepare for that trauma. And then you have to recover after that trauma ends. And what happens is if we can't recover in a healthy way or in, a, in an adaptive way, then we get stuck. Part of the trauma uh, symptoms is, is a, an example of like narrowing of time. Time just gets really small. And if you can think of it as like binoculars where when you open them up really wide, that's kind of like our healthy, like adaptive 
viewpoint or time point, but trauma, like our lens is really small. We get really stuck in that traumatic experience. And so we operate in the present, but our bodies and our minds are still in the past with that trauma. And so if we're continuously traumatized, we never have an opportunity to think about the future, to live present in this moment, because we're always still in the past trauma. And, and so so time really isn't a factor when we talk about, you know, getting over things or um, this should no longer affect you because it was so long ago. Trauma time is something completely different. So it's not really a relevant comment. It's not, no, it's not a relevant comment. Um, you know, it's it's invalidating, certainly, but it's just also um, you just don't quite understand the concept of trauma if you are making those types of comments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then I think something also that, that, you know, that you mentioned that's, that is interesting is if you, you were talking about recovery, what recovery, you know, looks like and getting stuck and just imagining, I know we haven't really gotten into the details yet, but how difficult it might be to try and recover when you're in the environment, you know, typically as a counselor who works with, with, with trauma, when, you know, when, when I'm working with somebody who's been traumatized, typically the first thing I want to check for is if they're still in the environment. You know, most things a trauma counselor will do is, you know, it's ideal to start the recovery process once you're removed from the traumatic environment. And right now we're kind of in a situation where there's just seems to be minimal ways to escape that. Um, So even trying to start the recovery process sounds like it could be really challenging when the environment is still traumatizing. Absolutely. Yeah. You're speaking to like the first goal is to get to safety um, so that you can be able to process that traumatic experience and kind of learn healthy coping strategies, you know, ways to manage your emotions and, you know, think about that event in a more adaptive way, all of that. But you can't do that if you're continuously being re-traumatized. And that's what we're looking at when we talk about racial trauma is that we can liken it to other types of trauma experiences. But what's different about racial trauma is that it's pervasive and it's multifaceted. So it can happen in a variety of different ways. And so it's difficult to escape in that way, which makes the recovery very difficult. Thank you. Um, And I know you've mentioned before, so when we talk about racial trauma, is this, something um so two different questions came up for me when we were just having this conversation um is i know you mentioned so can you just talk a little bit about how it's experienced does this does the person have to have experienced this i know you touched on that a little bit do they have to have experienced the trauma or the racism directly um does it can you talk a little bit more about how racial trauma is experienced Mm-hmm. It can be experienced a variety of ways. And no, it doesn't have to be directly. That's typically what we think is that I have to be directly victimized by racism to experience racial trauma. But what we found is that vicarious trauma is also just as impactful. So witnessing somebody else experience racism or witnessing, <clears throat> it doesn't even have to be somebody that you know personally. It could just be somebody who looks like you experience racism. So, you know, when we're talking about 
shootings and police brutality and things like that. I don't personally know the victims of that, but because they look like me or they look like a family member that I have, or they look like my daughter or my brother, um, that is vicarious trauma or kind of like collective experience of trauma. Um, and so that has an impact on, on our functioning as well. And I think that's less understood, but needs to be understood because it's a really important part of the conversation when we talk about how to support um, people who are experiencing racial trauma is that they do not have to directly experience the trauma. And I think I'm glad that you mentioned that because a lot of commentary that I hear around conversations like this sometimes involve people making comments like, um, for example, I, I just heard a conversation recently and, and, and they were having a conversation. It was two men having a conversation, a black man and a white man. And the, com the, the white man made a, a comment to the black man saying like, why are you even, how are you even still upset about racism? Like, look at what you're doing. Like you're making good money. You don't experience racism. This is not your experience. So why are you jumping on board? The police have never shot you. Now, granted, this man has had negative experiences with police, but um, he, you know, the police have never shot you. So I don't know why you're making this such a big deal when you're successful, you own a home. Um, do you have something you'd like to add about people like your say about comments like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it speaks to just the ignorance in regards to like vicarious trauma, certainly, right? Just not knowing that that is a significant piece of experiencing trauma. But also it kind of um, it plays into like this individualistic value that we have as Americans. And we forget that we also have like a collectivistic um, connection to one another. We should. And I think that um, looking at individuals and saying like, well, you made it, so you shouldn't be impacted by this, um, is, is not helpful because we know that we are going to be connected to people who look like us. Um, also again, then ignorance related to other types of forms of racism, as you said, like it, it may look on the surface that you kind of overcame racism, but that doesn't mean that you haven't experienced it. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't have these markers of success, meaning if you get to a certain point, racism shouldn't no longer exist, no longer exists. It shouldn't be. I think that's something that might absolve us of a little bit of guilt. Um, if we can say, well, look, we had a first black president or, you know, you, you have this great job or you own a house or your kids go to a really great school. It kind of makes us feel better as a society to say racism doesn't exist because look at all of these things. Um, but certainly, as you pointed out, we are minimizing that individuals lived experiences of racism every step along the way. Um, so, you know, I think there's there's just a lot of a lot of com complexities within that within that comment of, you know, not understanding trauma time, invalidating that person's experiences, trying to absolve yourself of guilt or just not wanting to feel like you're a part of a racist system, uh, which we know that we all are. Mm -hmm. OK, yeah, thank you. And I think, too, like speaking of guilt, you know, I, I have these conversations quite often and, and comments that I hear being made um, from particularly a white audience is, um, oh, I, I, sh I, I shouldn't have to feel I, I don't 
I shouldn't have to apologize for being white. I shouldn't have to apologize or I shouldn't just be guilty because I'm white. And I think that there's kind of like a huge misunderstanding of, of I don't, I, I've never really, I, like I, I haven't found there. I've never have been asked to apologize for being white. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been something that's ever been asked of me. And I have conversations like this quite often. I go to as many trainings as I can go to. I've never had a person say to me, like, you're white, you need to say sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, right. However, I do understand, like, so, like, when you talk about the guilt that's involved, I, uh, and, and please correct me if I'm misunderstanding, but how I understand that is there's a guilt of, kind of like not being ready to really acknowledge how bad it is mm-hmm. there's kind of like that avoidance of like I I'm not I can't accept that things are this bad absolutely and you know it, it feel well one I think rate being racist just being called a racist or this idea that you possibly could be racist has become such a like triggering term that everybody is like, Oh no, not me. Like, I don't want to be in that category, which, you know, we know is because of all of the guilt and shame associated with like a systemic form of racism. So I think that if we can all get to a place of, it's not really about whether we're racist or not. It's looking at this We are having technical difficulties. Okay, sorry. You're, okay. There was a there was a, a flip. Everybody, sorry. We're back. Okay, sorry. Can you, you continue? No worries. Um. So, you know, I think that white individuals really struggle with this idea of if they are a part of the racist system and they've benefited from it that that somehow takes away from all of their hard work or who they are personally. And so, you know, they, you know, you want to get away from that and say like, not me, like that, that's not something that I'm a part of, which is not a helpful stance when, when we look at ways that we can kind of dismantle the system. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the, the audience of this podcast is uh, mainly a white audience of people who are trying to kind of like get more information to kind of learn more. Um, so a lot of the, this, the, the direction will kind of be geared towards. That's yeah. And I'm, I am happy to like have these conversations with white individuals who, you know, are struggling with this new like awakening or kind of like this racial awareness that they're having right now um you know because we talk a lot about racial identity as it pertains to black indigenous and people of color but we also need to consider the racial identity of white individuals and how you develop your racial identity as a white individual oftentimes in a system that oppresses black um, indigenous and people of color and that is a hard uh, you know, concept to to sit with and to acknowledge, and I understand why it brings up a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. is a, and you know, that's uh, I think white people seeing themselves in a racial context is just a um, it, it they we don't. Mm-hmm. So it's a you know I 
I remember the first time somebody asked me that, like, oh, you know, uh, what does it mean to be white? And I was like, huh? Like, I didn't know. I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm just like, I didn't, I had no way of even knowing how to go about even beginning to answer it. Um, and it really took me some time to really like sit with that question and, and really come up with an answer. And I find it, you know, like I was saying, like I have these conversations very often and, um, you know, with, with people who I'm, I'm close with and we're comfortable having these conversations. And I ask, like, what does it mean to be black? Mm-hmm. I've never had anybody miss a beat with giving me an answer. Like it, they're not all the same answer, but there's an answer. They have an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I and think that that would be a good first step. Absolutely. And you're speaking to this idea of privilege, right? Which is also a triggering term where people, you know, don't want to admit that they have privilege, but it's a privilege to not have to think about being white, mm-hmm. right? To not have to incorporate that into your understanding every day and into your identity. And so you just grow up and this is just the norm and the baseline for you. But mm-hmm. black children have, from early on learn that they're black and they have to figure out what that means for them and how to interact in the world really young. And so there's there's no option to not know what it means to be black in America or what your racial identity means to you because it's something that is in your face and you have to confront at a really young age. Thank you for sharing that because I think that that is something that um, I know we're kind of going a little bit down a whole separate road, so we'll get back to racial trauma in a second, but I, I think that that's something that's really, really important to talk about because, um, you know, as a white person, as white people, I, I don't think that there is very much, there is not very much, it's just not. Like, you know, I've never had a conversation as a child with like, oh, you know, well, whiteness was just not talked about. Like, it just wasn't really, it was, race was something that other people had and yes. kind of brought to us, but we didn't really like have race. Um, so, and, and I've been hearing now, and it, it's kind of hard to like miss these comments now because like with the, with the climate of the country, not that it wasn't going on before, but now like everybody seems to be, it's really heightened. Mm-hmm. And a lot of comments that I have been seeing way more often than I would like are people blaming black parents for why for their children feeling uh, discomfort with, or with not with racism but feel like they're so the comments that I've been seeing are like well black parents are raising their kids to have chips on their shoulder mm-hmm. they're raising them to be angry they're raising them so do you have something you'd like to to say yeah. about that or Yes, actually, this is like my dissertation topic now that we're getting into. <laughs> um, so there's this, uh, you know, from I think in society we hear it called the talk, but in like research lingo, you would hear it referred to as racial socialization. And so these are things that parents do, similar to other types of socialization strategies as you're raising your kids. Black parents are raising their kids with a racial awareness, with recognizing that they are black. And what research tells us is that this is actually a protective factor for racial trauma. And so it's not that you're developing a chip on your shoulder, but you're teaching your children the realities of how others are going to 
interact with you, the barriers that you're going to face, the things that you're going to have to overcome because of the color of your skin. And so I think that if we live in this colorblind world, certainly it seems like we're preparing our children for a world that doesn't exist, but that's not our reality. Our reality is that parents have to have these conversations, real tough conversations with their kids in order to protect them. And time and time again, we see this as a protective factor um, in terms of how to interact with the police, in terms of you know how to love yourself, right? We, there's so many books and I see Netflix coming out with um, shows now of black actors reading books with black characters. All of this is is racial socialization. It's It's not just talking about discrimination and prejudice that you're going to experience, but it's also talking about racial pride and instilling pride in your culture and your heritage. And so um, to the people who say that this is a negative parenting strategy, it's not. It is a protective factor for Black families, and it is something that has kept the Black community alive throughout all of this racial trauma for the past 400 years. And I think, and I think this kind of is a good kind of like segue back into the racial trauma conversation. I, I was, I was reading some research not too long ago. Um, and it, the, the point of the, the research, it was, it was talking about um, how African-American families um prepare their children for racism. And it was talking about having those conversations and how that leads to some significant um, anxiety for children later. Like having those conversations um, about, um, you know, like, well, well, this was the racism I experienced and, you know, this is what it might look like and things like that, that they were saying that these things create some significant anxiety and depression for kiddos as they get older. And I thought reading that research, I thought, wow, this is just so horrible. It's like you're, the option is your child having anxiety or depression or not, or possibly dying. Yeah, not being so alive. It's, it's, yeah, it's kind of, you know, the, the options are just horrible. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yes, so if what we know is that if there's a lot of conversations only about racism and how you're going to be treated differently and how you know, the world is terrible and out to get you, that does lead to a lot of anxiety and depression. So we actually have to have those conversations, certainly, but there's a dimension of racial socialization um, where you're instilling the racial pride and instilling a positive racial identity. And that is the key to kind of combat some of that anxiety and depression. You know that if black individuals are able to develop a positive racial identity, that helps them be able to use healthy coping strategies to manage that anxiety and depression that they're going to experience. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that also that brings me to other comments along the lines of when we talk about there being pride, right? Or when we talk about um, um, celebration of blackness, mm -hmm. it seems that it really makes white people uncomfortable. Like, well, why is there a celebration of blackness? Because if I try to celebrate my whiteness, I'd be racist. Certainly, yes, I hear those comments a lot. And that goes back to the privilege of not even realizing that we've been celebrating whiteness forever, right? And so I think that 
that those comments are coming from just never having these conversations, not realizing that whiteness is celebrated on stage all of the time. Um, and, you know, people give those examples of like the Band-Aid where um, the skin colored Band-Aid is never anybody's skin color or the flesh colored Band-Aid except for white individuals, which shows that like everything else is seen as deviant to the norm and so celebrating those other colors celebrating the other cultures celebrating different hair textures and whatever the case may be is not not celebrating whiteness it's just finally it's not racism against white people against white people it is certainly just giving other cultures um the stage for once mm -hmm. okay. well thank you thank you for sharing that Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, because I know we're like going down a bunch of roads, yeah, but we are. but it's all it's all connected and it's all intertwined when we talk about racial trauma because um, it, when we think about racism, we we do think about really those like overt types of like physical violence, and and that's what we think we would want to label somebody as a racist if they engage in those types of behaviors. But you know, comments about you know saying well, if I were to celebrate this, it would be racist. And those types of things are like microaggressions and invalidations of the black experience. And those add up to be significant traumas as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, I, and, I, and, and right now, particularly, escaping these comments is just, mm -hmm. it just seems like it's just not even a possibility. No, they just seem to be everywhere. Um, and I think social media also adds like a weird aspect of people being able to kind of like hide behind their keyboard and they're really, really comfortable with what they're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. A comfort level has increased. And then I think our awareness has increased as well. So we might have seen these comments before in the past, but just never given them a second look. But now that we have this higher level of racial awareness, we're like, ooh, that seems kind of racist. <laughs> and so we're seeing it everywhere. Um, so I want to go back to the, there was a comment that we were we were just having a conversation a while ago about um, the environment being unsafe, right? Mm -hmm. We were talking about recovery and the environment being unsafe. Can you speak a little bit about what makes the environment unsafe for any person of color? Certainly. Um, so it doesn't have to be like you are in a situation where your physical safety is in danger. So it doesn't have to be a violent encounter that makes an environment unsafe. It's just this, um, it can be just even subtle interactions with, with individuals that, like I said, these microaggressions are really important part of the conversation as well, because we often overlook them. And, um, what's his name? Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He mm -hmm. likes to refer to them as racial abuse, which I would like to adopt because I don't think that we give that enough credit in terms of what can make an environment unsafe. And so it certainly could make interactions unsafe. It could make the culture of our workplace feel uncomfortable and unsafe for black individuals to just be themselves. Um, you know, with these microaggressions happening daily, frequently. Um, there's just a variety of things that can make an environment feel unsafe. And it doesn't, ha I think we have to look out 
look at it outside of like a violent interaction. It doesn't have to necessarily be you getting shot or somebody nope. calling you a vulgar a vulgar slur. It can just be. It can just. Can you explain what a microaggression is? Mm-hmm. It's the comments that we make that oftentimes are uh, hidden as like jokes, um, but it, they could be things like, "Well, you're not really black." Or you talk white, or you sound white, um, or comments about your hair texture, um, or comments about your performance, someone being shocked that you're successful, um, or someone kind of just even overlooking your success because they didn't think it was you. I'll, I'll say I did a webinar recently, and um, it even though my photo was up, that could have easily been missed, but it was just assumed that I was not a black individual who's presenting this webinar based on my type of voice, I guess. Um, so those still getting a question of like, how many black people contributed to this convert to this webinar when it's like me, that like, I don't know. <laughs> just kind of assuming that like something at this level would not be presented by a black individual, for instance, like all of these give us examples of microaggressions that are just really, really subtle. I'm thinking of also like sitting next to somebody on a bus and them moving their purse or them getting up and moving. So they don't even have to say anything. It doesn't even have to be comments. Someone moving sides of the street when you walk by or um, following you around in a store. All of those are really, really subtle and can easily be missed, but they add up over time and they take a significant toll on our mental health. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Um, okay, so uh, my next question is, and we touched on this a little bit, but um, how does racial trauma affect people generationally and what does that look like? <sighs> how it affects people generationally. So, Oh, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But before we get to that, I do want to say, because I know you were talking about vicarious trauma and something that I think that is important. Um, you know, it's strange to me that there are so many videos mm -hmm. of black men being killed mm -hmm. just out so publicly. I, I really, I can't, I don't think I could say I'd ever turned on the news and saw a white person. Not that it's never happened. I just can't recall a time I've ever personally have turned on the news and then say like, oh, live, like, you know, here's recorded footage of a man getting shot and then me actually seeing that happen. Um, so when you talk about vicarious trauma, you know, and with all of these, it's, it seems that there's just so often a video of a black man or woman being shot or killed or um, brutally beaten. Um, so I think that that's worth mentioning, you know, that this, these things, not only do you not have to experience it personally, but you see it so often. It just seems inevitable sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. And in this age of social media, as you said, it just adds a different layer to this where these videos go viral and there's not a way that you can escape them. And so for black individuals, you are, you know, constantly just trying to dodge those types of videos so that you're not, um, 
you know, continuously to continuously being re-traumatized through what, yeah, what we've talked about is vicarious trauma. But I also will say like, you know, the videos going viral are a form of lynching. They're a form of modern day lynching, right? Where they are put on display. There's, you know, there's a reason why we're not seeing other individuals, you know, different races, their encounters, negative encounters with police being uh, recorded over and over and over, replayed over and over and over. Is that there is a um, element to this that you know perpetuates the systemic racism as well, and so you know we're we're seeing these videos for a variety of different reasons. To not saying to purposefully re-traumatize the black community, but I'm sure that there is an element of that within this conversation um, as a warning to you know the black community. That's what lynchings were, right? Putting the the black individuals on display so that other people could see what not to do. It also perpetuates the narrative of black individuals being criminals and doing something wrong. And so every time you turn on the news, then it leads you to believe that another, uh, you know, criminal has done something wrong and this is what they deserve. And so there's just a lot, there's a lot tied into like why these videos are going viral and how it contributes to racism and how it certainly um, re-traumatizes the black community. Thank you. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that to be something, it's, it's, it's very it's strange that you would see somebody die and your first thought would be, I'm going to look up their criminal record. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like a strange, like, I don't even know how something that happened, if anything, if something happened years ago, what that has to do with you kneeling on somebody's neck for nine minutes. It's right. just, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sorry. I just thought that that was worth mentioning just to kind of really um, let there be a strong understanding of how vicarious trauma can, Absolutely. how easily it is to, how easy it is to come across something that can be traumatizing without having to have been there or experienced it yourself. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sorry. So the question was, is how does racial trauma affect people generationally and what um, does that look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> we talked a little bit about like the legacy of slavery and how just like conversations get passed down. And so we know that trauma is stored within our bodies. And so I think I talked about that already. But racial trauma then that our ancestors have experienced is passed down through our bodies from generation to generation. So it's not only the like verbal stories that you get, but trauma changes our brain chemistry. It changes the functioning of, you know, our nervous system, as I said before. And so that is passed down. And so you get a legacy of, you know, brain structure that is changed, unhealthy coping strategies that are passed down, all in efforts of self-protection um, and self-preservation from experiencing significant trauma. And, I, you know, I, I came across some research that was talking about how um, Africans mm-hmm. do not have high blood pressure mm-hmm. at the same levels of African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be very interesting. So there's something going on between the relationship of Black America and 
the United States. There's something going on in that relationship that is causing high blood pressure, which I thought was really noteworthy. Absolutely. Yeah. When we look at the like disparities in, um, or like the disproportionate rates of like health concerns within the black community, we certainly can liken that to racism. There's tons of studies out there that's trying to figure out what is going on. Why do black Americans have such high blood pressure, higher rates of, um, Alzheimer's? Like what is, what's happening within you know, our, our uh, medical field that, that we're trying to figure this out. Um, even within the mental health field, we just see higher rates of different diagnoses. Um, certainly that's going to, part of that is going to be misdiagnosing. Um, and we can talk about that, but that gets into a whole nother topic. Um, but yes, racism is going to impact our body chemistry and how we cope, as I said, and that has long-term health outcomes with African-Americans being, having higher rates of strokes. And as you said, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, there is a lot of serious health concerns. And I, and I even think that we are now uh, aware of the disproportionate rates of colon cancer because of Chadwick Boseman's recent loss to um, colon cancer. We've seen um, studies have come out that African-Americans are disproportionately um, more likely to have colon cancer and die from colon cancer. So there's, there's, there's not a lot of explanations for that um, until we get into the role of racism and how it impacts our bodies. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, so, okay. Was there, was that, did you have anything else you wanted to add for, to that, answer that question? I don't think so. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, uh, my next question is, um, do you find the reactions of the looting and rioting now? And I also want to add to, so 93% of the protests we've been seeing have been peaceful. But yes. there does appear to be an extreme hyper focus mm-hmm. on the other seven percent of sure. protests that are not as peaceful. Mm-hmm. Um, so, would you say that you find the reactions of looting and rioting to be an outcome of a tra- uh, to be a trauma response? And if yes, why? Mm-hmm. Yes, ab- absolutely. Um, I was reading something something the other day about like the trauma model and there's like a double bind within our like understanding of like what's a appropriate response to trauma um but yes so the aggression the um frustration all of that is related to victims of trauma not feeling heard and so like you said most of the protests are peaceful but when i talk about aggression i'm talking about like yelling of voices and just like be feeling strong and passionate about, um, about these issues. And so when you've been a victim for so long and nobody is validating your experience, you are going to get louder and do everything that you can to try to raise awareness. And certainly we don't have all of the information on what the violence and things are looking like and whether it's protesters related to Black Lives Matter or other types of um, terrorist groups. But certainly what we can say is that 
if these protests are getting violent, it is in an effort to continue to make noise about the marginalization and victimization of the Black community. So it is certainly a trauma response in that when you have been a victim of trauma, you will do anything that you can to get people to see you and see your experience. Um, you know, people like to quote Martin Luther King all of the time, um, related to nonviolent protests, but fail to talk about his other quotes of, you know, um, riots and, um, you know, protests being the language of the unheard. And so the reason for this is because historically, the, the experiences, the lived experiences of the black community have been invalidated. Yeah. And I think, too, people quoting Martin Luther King and, and really advancing his, um, I see a lot of comments, like, oh, you know, like, he was peaceful, and yes, and he was assassinated and assaulted, like, several times. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. So, so I, I don't think peace, I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't, I'm, peaceful's great. Absolutely. Uh, but it, it didn't, it didn't, um. It didn't keep him safe. He still was not heard. He still, yeah. yeah there was still yeah. a lot. Absolutely. He still was killed. Um, we're still fighting for the same things that he was fighting for, you know, generations later. So the peaceful option, yes, that would be the best way to go. But that doesn't stop people from being killed or just for, you know, the stories to be invalidated, the experiences to be invalidated. Um, so next question is, knowing what we know about racial trauma, what would you say to people who say, it's horrible that these are, uh, it's horrible that the, the killings are happening in the black community. It's horrible that racism is, is happening, but, you know, looting and, and riots just has to, has to stop. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I liken this to just a form of gaslighting which is really trying to invalidate or make somebody feel crazy for their experiences. We would never say, I'm so sorry that you were sexually assaulted, but how you're coping with it is just not appropriate. Um, so when we flip the types of traumas, I think we can see um, how kind of ridiculous that sounds. Um, so it, it's a form of racial gaslighting, really invalidating that experience, not taking racism seriously, and putting property and businesses, like the li livelihood of that, of the structures over human lives. And so those things can be replaced. Certainly we have insurance for those reasons and not advocating for the destruction of property, but human lives can't be replaced. And so when you say, yeah, 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 racism is really bad. They shouldn't have been killed, but like these poor businesses, you're placing the businesses above the lives of black individuals. So I just would really, you know, ask people to look inwards at themselves and say, why are you more outraged about businesses being looted or protests turning violent than people being murdered? Um, and that kind of gets to kind of uh, your own self-reflection work of, of, of what piece of the puzzle are you more concerned with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, for me, the biggest my biggest issue with that comment is kind of where the importance is being placed. Uh -huh. 
you know, because it's simple to just switch that and to just say, like, it's horrible that those businesses got burned down, but we really need to be doing something about racism and, and really, like, no matter how you cut the cake, destroying property is horrible, but it's, it's not violence. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, when I, when you live in big cities, you hear this, like, warning, at least I heard it when I was living in London a lot, of, um, you know, if you're being attacked or something's happening to you in a big city, yelling for help or yelling, you know, that you're being harmed usually doesn't awaken anybody. But if you yell fire, people usually come running. And I think that this is back to um, this idea that, we have to get your attention. We have to let you see or get you to see that this is important, that people are dying, that, that, that we've reached a breaking point. And telling you that this has happened to me doesn't awaken anything inside of you. But seeing your businesses or, you know, seeing fires or whatever the case may be, be burning, that gets your attention. And certainly we don't want to have to resort to that. But that should cue into people how serious this issue is and how in pain the black community is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot of conversation kind of surrounding, um, I just, it's just almost every conversation I'm seeing is somehow related to rioting and looting and, um, you know, officers. Did, I don't know if you've heard about those two officers that were shot outside of Compton. Mm, I did not hear. Okay. Um, so it, it's really, there are these things that seem to be happening that are not horrible. I mean, they're horrible things. The loss of any life is horrible. Um, they're just, they seem to just be such deflections from away from the actual issue. Mm -hmm. It's horrible. So these officers were ambushed in their car. They were shot. They ran away. And then um, allegedly protesters would not let um, the ambulance into the hospital. Ah, okay. They were blocking up. Horrible. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, I know it's not happening at a rate anywhere near the numbers we're seeing for racism. So it's just odd to me when people hop onto these random things that are horrible, but then somehow allow that to be the face of black America. Yes. And dismiss what's actually, it's horrible that those things happened, but to kind of latch onto that, like I said, 93% of these protests, I think it's something they were saying like seven, there are 70 Black Lives Matter protests a day in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, you know, it's just strange to me that, that, that these narratives are getting latched onto um, so strongly. And it's like people are really having a hard time even seeing anything beyond that. And I think hearing 93% of them are peaceful really kind of ruins the narrative that they're pushing. Absolutely. Well, it's not strange because it maintains the status quo, right? Like it keeps us in a place to say racism doesn't exist. Look at, you know, look at the black individuals that are criminals are doing, you know, really horrible things. And let's keep the focus there because that's what we're comfortable with. And that's 
what we know instead of having to unlearn what we know and relearn or just re-see the world in a different way and look at how all of us are interconnected within this very unhealthy system that's not working for anybody, right? It's really not working for a lot of people. I think, you know, there might be a, a very select few of people that are benefiting from it. But if we really look at how like the system of white supremacy and just like overall like oppressed system, it's not functioning well. And if we know anything about systems, they're going to work really hard to maintain like the status quo, even if it's not working well. And I think that's what we're seeing right now is just the change feels so uncomfortable and is just out of the norm that people are going to hold on to anything that they can to just maintain a sense of normalcy, even if normal is not okay. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, and my last question talking about, like, I know you were mentioning like criminals and is there anything you would want to say to anybody whose comment is, and I know this is kind of like super off of racial trauma, kind of like down another road, but I can already hear the questions. Sure. Um, so do you have anything you'd like to add to people saying anything along the lines of like, well, uh, black people are committing more crime or uh, we're seeing black people be stopped so much because there's high crime in their communities? Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, I, there's a lot that I would like to say. And, you know, I think that we have to really look at our biases and try to understand why it is that the black community is perceived as committing more crime. So this like idea of black on black crime gets thrown up a lot. Oh, that's um, a whole other podcast. Yeah, a whole yeah. other thing. <laughs> but I think a lot of it is the narrative of that we don't ever place statistics next to each other. We simply just place negative statistics about the black community up to further our bias, to further this image of black individuals in black community being criminals. And so I just would really challenge people to get more evidence um, and education because, you know, things like black on black crime don't exist, um, you know, in the sense that we commit crimes against people who we're close to um, and we are segregated still in this country. And so black communities are often largely 90%, you know, 99% black. So you're gonna commit crimes against people who are within your same environment. Um, similarly with other um, race and ethnicities as well. But I really just would challenge people to look at the statistics, look inward at their biases and try to see like a larger picture or like what is the narrative that is trying to be presented to continue this <laughs> racist structure um that would be my biggest suggestion but i think there <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot that goes in there of yeah just educate yourself on on why certain statistics get um amplified and what narrative that continues. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, um, this has been very informative. Um, I appreciate it. I know a lot of topics, we kind of went down a couple of little side roads and I know a lot of those side roads can be our podcast just on their own. Um, so to everybody listening, that will probably, there will, you know, there will be more information for some of those things. 
Um, so I really appreciate you kind of shedding some light on some of those Absolutely. other issues. I know racism is so huge and just so nuanced and it can be very complicated to it really can. And it can be uncomfortable because it's just so ingrained in our system. So yeah, it's hard to hard to piece it piece it out. But thanks for having the conversation with me. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being here. Um, everyone, that is all for today. Um, if you'd like to send us a message or think you have something valuable you'd like to add to the show or would like to be a guest, you can send us a message on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash not my problem podcast.